I want to begin with Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, and go through verse 9, and it says this, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all of the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Chapter 3, 1 through 4. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before and then finishing with chapter 4 beginning in verse 19 the people came up out of the jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at gilgal on the east border of jericho and those 12 stones which they took out of the jordan joshua set up at gilgal and he said to the people of israel when your children ask their fathers in times to come what do these stones mean Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord our God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's take a few moments to reflect together on God's word. A couple of weeks ago, I made a pretty significant mistake on my day off. I decided that all by myself, I could install a garbage disposal. 24 easy steps. Only one requiring a hammer. 
And the reason that is significant is because in my toolbox are two tools, a hammer and a cell phone. So if the hammer cannot fix the problem, then I need to call somebody. I do not need to try to do anything that requires anything other than a hammer or a cell phone. That's how unhandy I am. And so I spent my whole day trying to go through 24 easy steps. And I I don't tell you the kind of things that I thought of or the rejoicing that went on during that time of just thinking, what a wonderful day to hear underneath my sink. And, you know, the thing is, is there's just not a good way to get underneath your sink. You know, that just I won't tell you about it. But uh, despite my disability in in fixing things, occasionally I attempt projects that I shouldn't. For instance, this project of the garbage disposal. And several years ago, when Nancy and I had moved here, we bought a house, and it was a house that was on a cul-de-sac, and it, and it was kind of green in the back, but on this one side, we were really connected to this other backyard, and we thought, we don't need a whole fence, we just need something to go down this one line. And if we just have this one line plant some trees, we'll just kind of have this privacy in our backyard that we wanted, and so I thought, well, you know, how hard can it be? This is the famous last words, how hard can it be? Well, the best thing about it was when I went to, to Lowe's, I discovered they basically had a fence already built for you. In other words, you just had to put in the posts. The fence panel was already put up. So you put the post in, you put the panel on, you got a fence, presto. And I was like, man, this is awesome. So I called a friend. I said, hey, how hard is this? Of course, he was in construction. Oh, it's so simple, Paul. Anybody, Even you can do it. And so I'm like, okay. So I put these nine posts in, had a, had a chalk line, looked very professional, and, you know, cemented in, those in, waited a day, came back, had my eight panels that I was going to put up, and, and I, I was out there by myself, and I was holding this, you know, eight, this eight, this six foot panel up, and I kind of tacked it in to make sure it was square, and, and I got the measurement out. And when I was all done, it was just a little off on one end. It was just a quarter of an inch. And I was like, yes, this is way closer than I thought it would be. And I was just celebrating in the backyard. I mean, if anybody had seen me, they're like, something's wrong with this fellow. He needs help. And so I was like, this is, this is going to be so easy. So I got the other panel, and I put it up. And, of course, it started just a little off, just a quarter of an inch off. And I was like, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But then I noticed in order to sort of compensate for that quarter inch down here, then the next panel I tacked it up, it was three inches off. I thought, this is a good trajectory here. So I kind of quick calculated and realized my eighth panel was going to be 30 feet off the ground if I kept going in this direction. So what did I have to do? I had to go back to the foundational panel and make sure it was just right. Because every panel I put on after that gets its square, gets its measure from that first foundational panel. And so you just have to make sure, not just in building a fence, but building a life, building a church, that in your foundation you don't get just a quarter of an inch off. Because it may not seem like a big deal to you at the time. You may say, oh, we've got so many good things going on. It's just this one little thing. I guess it's not that big of a deal. But you realize that uh, another decade, another generation is going to put itself up against you. And you're going to have been a little bit off 
And if you just follow that trajectory out, and this has happened to many churches, a hundred years later, they're way off. And so I began the, the sermon now 13 years ago, 2002, with this as the opening story. And every year I come back to this sermon because I want us to always come back and sort of just re-examine the, pan- the first panel. Because, you know, we can get off and I wanted to come back and say, hey, if there's some kind of adjustment that we need to make, let's make it right now. Let's not get too far away so the adjustment is so hard or so wrenching. So we come back to these sort of foundational verses that we used 12 years ago and talking about our foundation and how critical it is. And in this passage, there are many points that can be made. I'm going to I'm going to pick out the three that we've been using first. These three foundational points, God's chosen leadership, God's word, and courage. Those were the three things that I focused in on in 2002. And I want to refocus our attention on those three things. God's leadership. It's a foundation in how God builds its church. God's word. It's a, it's a firm foundation. It's a sure foundation. And then courage. So look, let's look at those in turn. God's chosen leadership in the opening line of the Lord's prayer. It says our father who art in heaven. What does it say? Hallowed. Hallowed be your name. It's the word for holy, which means separate. It's it's something altogether different than our name. There's there's not a there's there's a distance. There's a massive distance from anything that we could build or do to compare to God's name. And and Jesus is teaching his disciples that this is a, a foundational point in your understanding of yourself and understanding of God, that God is hallowed. He's, he's altogether separate. He's holy. It, his, his name, his holiness is above his kingdom. It's above his will. It's above our daily bread. It's above forgiveness. It's above temptation. Uh, above all these things is God's name. And God isn't limited as to how he might declare his name. The heavens declare the glory of God, the Psalms say. But the one primary way God declares his name is through uh, godly leadership. It begins with Adam and Eve. God uh, specifically made them in his image to reflect him. So that when generations came and looked on Adam and Eve, they, they would reflect who God is, his glory, his name. And specifically, Adam was given the leadership in the garden. And we know, because we know after the fall, God God comes walking in the garden. We know that Adam has this leadership because when God comes back walking in the garden, the first thing he says is, Adam, where are you? I gave you the leadership. Where, where were you to protect your wife? Even more importantly, where were you to protect my name, my glory, my word? You didn't stand in the way of Satan coming in. Where where were you and where are you? So one of the great failures in the garden is the failure of leadership. But even after the fall, God continues to, to grant leaders this privilege, this position to continue to, to declare his name. And Moses is another good example. Isaiah 63 says this. The people remember the days of Moses. 
They're reflecting back on Moses, and this is what they remembered. When God caused his glorious arm, God's glorious arm, to go at the right hand of Moses, God divided the waters to make for himself an everlasting name. Even in this passage in in Joshua chapter 4, they're going to set up these stones. And they're stones of remembrance. It's called an Ebenezer. It's It's a little statue of stones that you would come by. And the purpose, the whole purpose of that is to give God's name glory, to give God's name fame. People say, who did this? Well, it's really about what God has done for his people. Ravi Zacharias makes this observation about godly leadership and movements. There are no bona fide mass movements. There are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. There is no abstract movement moving ahead. Instead, there are individuals moving ahead, and therefore, the cause of Christ is moving ahead. See, there's not just a movement. A movement is somebody or some maybe a small group of people, somebody at the center of the column who knows their God and is going after God, and a movement comes across or around that particular point. And the reason this is so important for Christ Community Church is because 13 years have gone by so quickly. I mean, here I am. I know I don't look any older, but I'm 13 years older. And I don't know how much longer I have. I hope of many, many more years. But it'll just go by so quickly. And the reason this is so important for you is, is because you're going to have to put somebody at the center of this column. That has their eyes on the Lord. That, it, that is going to follow after the Lord. It's not going to just be a mass movement. It's somebody that you all have to choose that who's going to have their eyes on glorifying God, trying to make God's name great. See, 13 years ago when we started, uh, Zachary and Morgan and Nancy, they'll remember, you know, getting up in the morning, getting up early, packing our little Honda Civic full of all their toys that was going to be the, the nursery. We got our bread basket and shook out, we just shook out the uh, crumbs and we used it as the offering plate. Sadly, the very first Sunday, we didn't have any, any instruments. So that's why we sing this holy, holy, holy song because that we had these old hymnals and I said, look, Everybody knows this song, don't they? And I'll just lead us. And it was so painful. I mean, it was so painful. So I just stood there without any instrumentation. I'm singing the song. And it just has quickly gone by. And, and very quickly it'll seem, hey, we need a new person at the center of the column. And you need somebody who's interested in making God's name great. Not interested in making their name great. Not interested in making the church's name great, but interested in making God's name great. And so that God uses godly leadership. And you notice these two characteristics here in Joshua chapter 1. First, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Chapter 1, verse 1. The, the shepherd or the pastor of the church, his primary concern is to listen to God and, and to lean on and learn from his word. His, his primary relationship is with God and his relationship with God and his listening to God comes before his relationship with the people. 
We don't want a leader who's following the mood of the congregation. We don't want a leader who's following the mood of the culture. We don't want a leader who's following his own mood. We want somebody who's following after God. Somebody at the center of this column who's just trying to say, I'm trying to listen in on God. I'm trying to know where he's going. I'm trying to go in that direction. It's very difficult to to keep that in mind, to have this single audience in mind as God instead of the congregation. To, to, to say, God, if you're not moving in this direction, no matter what I want and no matter what the people want, we're not going to move forward. In Exodus chapter 33, the Lord comes to Moses. This was after the, the uh, golden calf. And he says this to Moses. Just imagine this. I leave this place. You get the sense that God's uh, tired or frustrated. I don't know if you can give him quite... Those emotions at this point, but it just has this way, this golden. We've just gotten out of the promised land and no sooner have we gotten out, we build this golden calf. And so God comes to Moses and says, OK, you, you leave this place and go to the land. I promise. See, I've made a promise and I'm going to get you to the promised land. And I'm going to send an angel before you and that angel is going to drive out all of your enemies and I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. So you get what God's saying? Okay, Moses, I, I promised I'm going to get you into the land. So let's go ahead and gather everybody up and let's go to the land. And I'm going to send an angel out ahead of you because you've got all these giants and enemies. And that angel's going to take care of all those people. And you're going to be able to come into this land. And you're going to have this massive prosperity, this land full of milk and honey. The only thing is I'm not going to go with you. Now, just think about how tempting that could have been. We're going to get everything we want. Just accept one thing. God. See, I wonder just in our minds. If we went to heaven and we got everything we want. Except for God. Would you say, okay. See, Moses, he's smart. And he says, God, if you don't go with us, we're not going to leave. We don't have to have the land. We don't have to have the angel. We don't have to have the prosperity. But we cannot live without you. And so here's a man at the center of the column, and he's saying, I'm listening in on the Lord. I'm not going to leave where he's not leading. So we have to make sure that godly leadership means not being distracted by novelty or popularity. That's exceptionally difficult in our particular culture. I use the same illustration every time. Several years ago, there was a new reality television show being uh, uh, produced. I realize reality television is an oxymoron. It's nothing real about what you see on television. But the, the, the title of the show was going to be called Pulpit Masters. And here was their advertisement. Could you be America's next inspired leader? To make a positive difference in millions of people's lives? Are you imbued with the fire and passion of God? Do you understand the power of the spoken word? We're looking for someone who can wow the pants off the audience. Each contestant would be given three minutes 
to get to stardom. To wow people's pants off. At Christ Community Church, we're not trying to wow your pants off. We'd like for you to keep your pants on. <laughs> but you see, the, the target for the leader is, is not the congregation. It's not to, to say he, he's not aware of the congregation, but the primary target is God. And if you get to that target, everybody's going to benefit. But if you miss that target, you've missed everything. So my, my primary purpose here is to glorify God. And the closer I get to doing that, the more help you get. The farther away I get from that, the less help you get. No matter how energetic I may be, no matter how what great stories I say, no matter how many times you want to keep your pants on or keep them off, it, all that stuff doesn't matter. It matters about how somebody's presenting the name and the glory of God. The second, second characteristic here of Joshua is he has to be a servant, not a star. Joshua chapter 1, or in chapter 1, Moses is referred to as a servant three times in these opening verses. Now Joshua, he's transitioning into that role of the leadership, and he's going to be the new servant. In the New Testament, the word leader is used less than one less than 10 times. The word servant is used more than 1000 times. Jesus himself, I did not come to to be served but to to serve, to give my life as a as a ransom for many. John Wesley, the great Anglican who started the Methodist Church, a, a powerful presence for God and a powerful preacher. He stood five foot two, and in his lifetime, he preached over 40,000 sermons. So if I ever get tired of preaching, I just think about this guy, 40,000. Mostly, you know, horseback from one church to another, preaching two or three times in a day. When he was 83, he was angry at his doctor because the doctor wouldn't let him preach more than 14 times a week. Hey, you're 83, we've got to cut it down to 14 times a week. At 86, he wrote this in his journal, laziness is slowly creeping in. I feel the increasing tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 in the morning. 86. He has a statue of himself, and underneath it says this. Reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't give God the glory. So we need somebody who's a servant, not a star. We need somebody at the center of the column who knows God, who trusts his word, who's, who's about making God's name great, not making his own name great. So the church, the church of Christ, not just Christ Community Church, but the church of Christ is built on Christ. He's the foundation. It's, it's not a pastor. It's not a group of elders. It's not a figure in church history. It's not the founding members. It's not a vision. It's not a dream. It's not a confession. It's not a ministry style. It's Jesus. He's what we're here for. Second, God's word. First, God's leadership. Second, God's word. When you, when you build uh, a fence or you build anything that you want to make straight, you, you come up with what's called a plumb line. Usually it's some kind of uh, string that has chalk on the string, 
and you tie it to a stake or a nail or something, and then you, you come across over here, and then you say, okay, what's straight? You make it straight, and then you pull the string, and you sort of pop it, and it lands on your floor, it lands on your, your grass, whatever you're making, and it's a straight line. So when you're building something, it's called the plumb line. So when you're building something, if you get a little off, you can see, because the plumb line is straight, and then you always sort of refer back to the plumb line. And the word canon, which is sometimes given for the Bible, it means measuring stick. It's like a plumb line. The canon, the, the Bible is like a plumb line. So we're always coming back to it. We realize we're crooked. Uh, our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. So he's the plumb line. We come back to the Bible and say, how can we get straight according to, to God's word, according to his Plumb line. And Joshua is given two exhortations here to stay close to God's word. First, it's a verbal exhortation, and then it's a visual exhortation. First, the verbal exhortation, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to do everything written in it. Don't turn to the right or to the left. The word of God shouldn't depart from your mouth. Meditate it on it day and night. I mean, it's just these one saying after another. And God is saying to Joshua, you're entering this whole new world. You've never been to this place. And it's going to offer all kinds of distractions, Joshua. When you get into this world, it's going to tell you, oh, this quarter inch here, it's no big deal. God won't care about that. It's going to be Genesis 3 all over again. Did God really say, I mean, did he really mean that? I mean, it's no big deal, is it, if you just get a little little bit off? And so, so God's saying, you've got to live according to the plumb line, the word, not the world. When you, you become a pilot, you, you have, first of all, what's called a visual, a visual rating. And, and then you have an instrument rating. So when you become a pilot at the very beginning, you fly visually, meaning you keep your eyes open, obviously. But you fly according to what you see on the ground. And you just visually navigate. You've got instruments, but you look and say, okay, I need to go this way or I need to be here or there because you can just see the terrain. So you, so if you just have a visual rating, you don't go up into fog. You don't go up into clouds. You don't have a rating for that. It takes extra time and extra practice to fly just by the instruments. Because what happens is when you get into a fog or a cloud, and you don't have any way to navigate from the ground, you can't tell if you're flying upside down. You can't tell if you're flying straight up in the air or you're flying down into the ground. And there have been people, well-known people, who haven't had an instrument rating, and they've gotten into a fog, and they thought they were perfectly fine, except they were flying directly into the, the earth. And they killed themselves and their passengers. Because they, they couldn't look at the instruments and tell which way they were. And when you ask pilots, what's very difficult about this is, is to say, it's very difficult to train somebody to just pay attention to the instruments and not pay attention to what's in their brain. And for us, there's so many things that are in our brain that we think, this has got to be right. And God's saying, no, 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 this is the instrument panel. And when your mind lines up with it, great. But if your mind doesn't line up with it, fly this way. No matter how strongly your impulse is, no matter how strong your desire is, this is the instrument panel. This is the wisdom for men and women to fly their lives by. 
In, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Satan planted that first seed of doubt. Can you really trust God? Can you really trust his word? Did he really say that? Should I, should I date this guy or should I not? Should I do this on my taxes or should I not? Should I think of, do this on my computer or should I not? All these things and you sort of in your head you're saying, did God really mean it this way? And the answer is probably yes, he did. But in our minds, it's so hard to live by that. And the Bible since Genesis 3 has always been under attack, even today. Constantly under attack. Can you trust it? In the 1700s, the famous French atheist Voltaire made this very famous proclamation. In 100 years, the Bible will be an extinct book. Imagine saying that. And I guess what's just a display of God's humor, 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and printed Bibles in it. I love the Charles Spurgeon, great uh, British preacher, says this, The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion out of the cage and the lion will defend itself. So, so at Christ Community Church, it's the lion. And we don't need to defend it. We need to let it out. We need to proclaim it. It, it can have its own defense. It has its own power. It's, it's the power of God for everyone for salvation. And so we are here trying to let it out. And my prayer is that we've done that for the last 13 years faithfully and that forevermore we will let it out. We'll let it defend itself. So we have this verbal illustration that God gives to Joshua. Then we have this visual illustration about the, 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 necessary, the, nece, the, nece, the necessity of following after God's word. Uh, chapter 3. Uh, Joshua is supposed to get the people together and say, hey, the Levitical priests, they're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Word of God, and they're going to go across the Jordan, and then you're going to follow after. And I want to make sure there's some distance, 2,000 cubits, probably three or four football fields between you and God's Word. Why? It says, says why. Because you've never been this way before. You have no idea how to navigate. This is a whole new territory. And I don't want you to depend on yourself. I want you to depend on God's word. And I want to make sure nobody gets too close. So that they think they're following a person rather than following the word. So let's all back up and we can see safely from 300 yards which way God's word is going. And let's just go in that direction. So God gives Joshua this verbal be strong, be courageous, don't depart from the right or the left, meditate on it day and night, plant it in your heart, and let's keep a good distance. So verbal and visual illustration of making sure you follow after God's word. Finally, courage. Three times, really kind of surprising here in this first chapter, be strong and courageous. I mean, Joshua's probably... Maybe the best military leader in the Old Testament. There were lots of great leaders. But three times God has to say, be strong and courageous. So you do think God knows 
Joshua might not be strong and he might not be courageous. So I've got to say it three times. I've got to say it over and over. I've got to get like a parent. I've got to drill this down into his head. And my question is, what would cause Joshua to be fearful? Well, one, one obvious answer is he had already been into the promised land 40 years ago. And remember, the spies came out, 12 spies went in, they all came out, and only Joshua and Caleb said we should go in. Everybody else said, what? There's giants! And the giants are in the land, and you know what? They look at the people of God, and they think they're grasshoppers. That's what they said. And so the grasshoppers can't possibly go in and defeat the giants, so let's wander around the desert for 40 years, which is what happened. And so Joshua understood when you go in, there really are big people in here. Now, he believed God was bigger, but there's a reason to be afraid. External forces. But there's another answer why Joshua might be afraid. And that's his own people. See, he had been in the desert 40 years. He had watched his God's people build a golden calf. Try to take Moses' leadership away. Try to say, hey, there's onions and cucumbers back in Egypt. Let's go back there. No, we don't want to go into the promised land. We're afraid of the giants. See, he understood that he might get shot down from behind. That, that leading this congregation, maybe the biggest enemy wasn't outside the walls. It was actually inside the walls. Little echo of Paul in Ephesus. Acts 19, 20. He's leading, leaving Ephesus. He gets these elders around. He said, I poured everything I can into you in the word of God. And I want you to be aware of wolves that are going to attack this church. And you know, he says where the wolves are going to come from. Inside. Be aware of the people inside. Yep, there, there are external enemies, but be aware of internal enemies. People that would come in and look like, hey, this panel's good enough, but can't we just get it a quarter of an inch off? Beware of those people. So he says, be strong and courageous. And then I love how this section closes here. They go across the Jordan. And then Joshua sends one person from every tribe, 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. They go back, they pick up a stone, they build this Ebenezer. And it's just a way to say, let's remember, this is a stone of help. It's a, it's a marker, it's a reminder that we have to be courageous. And I think about that for us as a church. It's, it takes a lot of courage for all of us to do what we're doing. Not, not just me, not just the elders, not just the teachers or the small group leaders, but it takes a lot. I think about these, these 10 or so high school students. What incredible courage it, it, it takes them to step out into a high school situation. What incredible courage it's going to take for them to, to go to these colleges next year and, and be strong and be courageous and not get a quarter of an inch off and come back four years later and they don't even know who Jesus is anymore. It's going to, that's going to take courage. And, and as a church, we're touching more lives today in different areas than we've ever touched before. And it takes courage to go out in those places. It takes some strength of character. And so my prayer is that we would be courageous as well. We know Joshua is a shadow 
of the true Joshua. The Old Testament's a shadow. Joshua is the Hebrew name. If you say Joshua in Greek, it's Jesus. So Joshua is the, the servant, but the true servant is Jesus. Joshua is a great military leader bringing people into the promised land. Jesus is the true leader bringing people into the promised land. He's the one who is actually the word. The word became flesh. If you follow after me, I'm the light of the world. You won't be flying upside down anymore. And the final marker, the one you look back on and say, look what God has done. This is it. Thirteen years ago, after I gave this sermon, Kenny Smith, who was thinking about becoming a member at that point, we were over at Temple Baptist Activity Center. He came up to me after the sermon and said, hey, that's a really great sermon. Let's see if it works. And I was like, there's a good church just down the street. You ought to try. Appreciate your skepticism. I mean, you know, I was trying to be nice and. I didn't know him that well. He's not, not, he's not really that kind of a person, but I was just kind of like taken aback. But then I thought, yeah, it's easy say. It's hard to do. By God's grace, we've done it. Not, not any glory to us, glory to God. But we're only just one year away from a quarter of an inch I'm only just one year away, one thought away from a quarter of an inch. So I always have to come back and put ourselves back in this first panel, re-examine ourselves, re-examine our church, re-examine our ministry, and say, where can we get back to the Word of God? Thank you all for being a part of Christ Community Church. It's really a great pleasure. I speak for the staff and the elders to, to be shepherds of your souls. We appreciate all the work that you do that many people don't see. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are now, uh, 13 years later. Very small amount of time in your, your time. But we're so grateful that you've picked us up like an instrument and used us in all kinds of ways to bring people from darkness into the light from death to life to, to strengthen a, a five-year-old boy who becomes an 18-year-old boy and off to college to, to reach out to somebody nearby in a community and to try to help them understand who Jesus is to walk beside them in difficult times to strengthen marriages to strengthen souls to encourage to exhort to communicate the grace of God always Lord, we we do pray for your special presence here, not for our purposes, but to make your name great in this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.